Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Amen. Well, as you grab your seat and grab your copy of God's Word, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. As you make your way there, I've got a riddle for you this morning, all right? See if you guys can get this. I really hurt, what am I? I I really hurt when I get broken, but I feel amazed when I get stolen. I may make you cry if I get touched, but you will be braver if I get taken. You will hear truth if I get crossed, and you'll feel better if I get poured out. I often get blessed when I go down south. You are born needing a new one of me, and if I quit, you will die. What am I? Oh, you guys are good. I Did the title give it away? I don't know, all right? But it's a heart, guys. A heart is very important, right? We cannot stress enough how important your heart is. Man, that little muscle lays wet, it, lay, it weighs less than a pound on average, right, but beats almost 5,000 times an hour. 115,000 beats in a day, just over 42 million beats in a year, and 3.4 billion beats in a lifetime, right? This is one busy organ. But when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about the muscle pumping in your chest. It's talking about this metaphor for your inner life, your inner being. It's the seat of your spiritual mental life. The heart is the center and the source of your whole inner being, your thinking, your feeling, your willing. And when it comes to parenting, we know well that parenting is hard work. Amen? Yes, it is. In fact, we said just a moment ago in Bible fellowship class in small groups that parenting is sometimes one of the most frustrating things that we do. Literally, literally, it is blood, sweat, and tears. Can I get an amen? (laughs) I was there for all of it, I'm telling you. (laughs) No doubt. Parenting, though, just isn't hard work. And it is, man. It is such hard work. It's also heart work. Parenting is not hard work alone. It is heart work, or at least it should be. So so today we're going to continue in our series called God-Shaped Parenting, where we're going to look to the perfect parent, God the Father, to see how he parents so that we can learn how to parent like God does. We want to parent like God parents. And so last week we looked at how God is God-centered. And then we pivoted to the fact that as parents, we should be God-centered as well, all right? We, we, we should work to build a God-centered home. That's very foundational in our Christian understanding, okay? A very foundational message. And so I, I know last week um, some of us were still enjoying and still recovering from the holiday weekend, okay? So I, I, I highly encourage you, if you did not get to hear that message, go back, check out the video, check out the audio uh, on our website or on our Facebook page to catch up on that. Just re- very foundational to how we see God and how that relates to the home being God-centered. But today's God-shaped parenting concept is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. I'm going to invite you to stand to honor the reading of the Word of God this morning. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Word of God says this. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about your word this morning and this foundational text for the message today, I pray you would help us to have your eyes, to have your perspective, to have your focus. Father, you're most concerned about the heart. And I pray as parents, you would help us to do the same thing. God, I want to lift up right now what's going on right here, that you would move in this service. But I also want to pray, God, that you would move and continue to work at our East Campus this morning as they finish up their 930 worship and head into their 11 o'clock worship time. God, we pray there would be freedom, that there would be joy, that someone who needs Christ would repent and trust in Christ. And we pray for the same thing right here, God. Would you move in our midst, God, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Grab your seat there. So here in 1 Samuel 16, God says, For the Lord does not look. For the Lord sees, verse, uh, se- verse 7, uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In other words, God is focused on the heart. Yeah, he's concerned about the whole being. But he's most concerned about our heart. And when we take that principle and apply it to parenting, we come up with today's truth. Okay, here's today's truth. It's this and simply this. Your child's heart for God should be your first and greatest concern. Your child's heart for God should be your first and greatest concern. So that means our goal as parents should be to focus on the heart of our child so that a heart of God is cultivated. But that's often not the goal of parenting. The primary goal anyway, not even for Christian parents, okay? Actions speak louder than words, right? We can say all day long that our primary number one goal is to cultivate our, our, our child's heart for God. We can say that all day long, but our actions oftentimes tell the truth about where our heart, where our goals actually are. So when we look at our actions, we find oftentimes in parenting that other goals take primacy, For instance, like the goal of keeping our kids busy. Keeping our kids busy. For some parents, that that is actually the goal, right? We want them in stuff all the time. We want to keep them engaged. We want to keep them stimulated. Uh, We want to have them to have little to no downtime. And so we shove a lot of stuff at them. We have them in a lot of stuff. And often it doesn't even matter what it is. As long as the time is taken up and as long as it doesn't kill them, right? I mean, we, we draw some lines. We don't want them to die doing it. But if it's going to take us some time and we'll kind of make them busy, we'll do it because we want to keep them busy. But I say to you this morning, is that the measure? Is that the measure of good parenting, of godly parenting? How many activities you can provide for your children? When you stand before God someday, is God going to ask you, child, How many activities did you provide for your children? No way, man. He's not going to say that to us. Yet keeping our child busy often becomes the actual primary goal of our parenting. Listen, now being active with your kid, enjoying the time with your kid, that's good. It's not a bad thing. But if we overschedule our child, 
God very well may be squeezed out. Or maybe the goal is that your child learns some special skill like hitting a baseball or shooting a basketball or hitting a puck or, or, or doing that dance or playing that instrument or doing those backflips, right? Some special skill. Those skills sometimes become the driving force in our family life such that it not only consumes our time, but it consumes our heart. Or maybe the actual goal is that your child is well-adjusted. <laughs> maybe you bought into the pop psychology of self-esteem. And you don't want to do anything to injure Johnny's whittle self-esteem. Right? So you do everything you can to prop them up and to, to encourage them in that way and, and, and to build up their self-esteem. Or maybe the actual goal is to have a well-behaved child. Maybe this is the most tempting for our Christian life. You want them to follow the rules. You want them to do what you said for them to do when you said to do it. You don't want them to get in trouble. You want them to be polite. You want to have a well-behaved child. Or maybe your actual goal is to have a religious child. As long as they do religious things, they're okay, right? Or maybe the actual goal that you have is to have a successful child. Whether that means getting it getting the right test scores or, or getting in the right sports team or getting into the right school with the right scholarships or maybe one day they get in the right job, the goal becomes success, quote-unquote success. How are you define success? But I'm convinced that Scripture, y'all, would have us to have as the first and greatest goal to be our child's heart for God. So what does that look like? Today I want to give you four actions that will help you focus first and foremost on your child's heart. And the first one is this, is to grasp that God is most focused on your heart. Again, we're, we're imitating God here, right? We want to see how God parents, and then we want to become more like God in that regard. And so we see here that God is most focused on your heart, and we need to grasp that. We see the principle right here in our primary text. Again, God tells the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, what led God to say this to Samuel? Well, the people of Israel had begun to bellyache to for a king. At that point, Israel was actually being led by Samuel. No, that's not true. It actually being led by God through the prophet Samuel. And so God was the king of Israel. Yet Israel looked around. And they said, well, they've got a king, and they've got a king, but we don't have a king, God. We need a king. And so they began to bellyache for a king, and God gave them a king named Saul. Now, Saul was the people's king. If, 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 if it had come down to an e a democratic election, <laughs> Saul would have been elected, man, hands down. Hands down, right? He was, a, he was a guy who was made for the cover of GQ magazine or, or for the magazine or the, the TV show. He was the star. 1 Samuel 9, 2 tells us that Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Man, he was a looker. He was a specimen of an Israelite. And God had Samuel anoint Saul as king of Israel. But while Saul looked good on the outside, on the inside, he was very deficient. Very deficient. 
He had a heart issue. And that deficiency began to bear fruit as Saul began to lead. And through a series of grievous sins, God rejected Saul as king. Therefore, he decided to anoint a new king. And so God sent the prophet Samuel to the house of the Israelite named Jesse in the city of Bethlehem. And Samuel went there looking himself, actually, for a Saul-like person. Someone physically impressive. Someone who's charismatic. Someone who's commanding. And so we read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, he says, When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. You see, Eliab was Jesse's firstborn. He looked like the prospect of a good king. But that's when God delivers what we've read a few times already this morning in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Samuel asked Jesse to bring his sons out. He had seven sons in all. And with each one, Samuel rejected that son until he got down to the seventh. And we read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 11 through 13. It says, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not set down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. You see, when God rejected King Saul, he told him, 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, that he was seeking a man after his own heart. And that wasn't Saul, right? Saul was deficient inwardly. He was great outwardly, but inwardly he was deficient. And he said, I need a king who has it right on the inside. And in David, God found that man. As God testifies in Acts 13, 22, it says, And when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. You see, church, I say to you this morning, God is most concerned about our heart. The reason is found in Proverbs 4, verse 23. Proverbs 4, 23, where it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I I like the way the NIV translates it a little more clearly, a little more explicitly. It says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Do you see how important the heart is? Everything you do flows from the heart. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the heart is central to your being. Your heart is central to loving God and to serving God and being the kind of human being that God wants you to be. That's why the summary of all of God's law is love God and love people. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, and Jesus said to the lawyer, this is our text last week, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When he says, I'm going to summarize the entire law, he goes to the heart. Love God. Love people. He is looking at our heart first and foremost. And we need to grasp that. And we need to imitate that as godly parents. Grasp that first, guys. Second, to focus first and foremost on your child's heart, you need to put the gospel at the forefront of your parenting. Put the gospel at the forefront of your parenting. Did you know that the Great Commission extends and applies to parenting? Have you ever thought about it like that? We often think about the tribes on the other end of the world, right? On the other side of the world, in a faraway land. But the Great Commission begins right there in your home. Go and make disciples, Jesus said, Matthew 28. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In other words, take the good news to the ends of the earth, mom and dad, but begin in your own cradle. Take it to the ends of the earth, but begin in your own cradle. The Great Commission begins with your own children. And in one sense, man, they're the largest mission field on earth because 100% of children are born sinners. And your calling, mom, and your calling, dad, is to be their primary evangelist. One of my joys is to come every Sunday and, 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 and a lot of the folks that pour into your kids, we love to share Jesus with them. But we're secondary, even tertiary. You are the primary evangelist for your kids. Listen, it doesn't take us long to see through that cute and cuddly stage, right? To see that sinful heart that lies beneath. Pretty soon, it's clear that, 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 that our children are convinced that the whole world revolves around them, and sin just comes naturally. You don't have to teach it. They naturally act bad. And here's what you're going to be tempted to do. You're going to be tempted to do some behavior modification. You're going to be tempted to just get out your little star chart. You're going to be tempted to get out your one, two, three magic book or whatever book or whatever pop psychology you want to pull out. And you'll be tempted to just train them and disciple them to act better. You'll be tempted to try every form of positive reinforcement you can think of. And when the positive doesn't work, you will come up with every punitive reinforcement you can think of. Man, you're going to offer them ice cream and toys and days at their favorite play place. And, and you're going to talk sternly to them. And you're going to spank them and put them in time out and revoke privileges and ground them. And all those things, all in an attempt to merely to get them to comply. Just to get them to comply. But beloved, please hear me. Do you know what Jesus calls outward compliance with no inward love for God, he calls that a white-washed tomb. And if we're not careful, we very well may raise up white-washed tombs. Children who act good outwardly but don't love God internally. That's why the gospel must be at the forefront of our parenting. You see... Your child 
acts bad because he or she was born with a bad heart, just like you and I were, right? A heart that does not love God rightly, a heart that loves sin more than God. And what they need is a supernatural intervention from God, that heart transplant from God, where they get that heart that is alive to God and living for God and loves God. And that only happens through one way. And that is what, church? The gospel. Everybody say gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Where the sinner is brought from death into life. That has to be at the forefront of your parenting. So put the gospel at the forefront of your parenting. Aim for their heart. That's what needs to change. Way more than their behavior. Their heart needs to change first. Third, to focus first and foremost on your child's heart. I want to challenge you to embrace parenting as a long-range discipleship process. A long-range discipleship process. Listen, it is, I, I know I just said put the gospel at the forefront, but it is not all about just get them saved. That's not what it's all about, right? Again, I, I meet with a lot of parents who are leading their kid to Christ and, and, and their, their child's talking a lot about Christ. And some parents focus so much on getting their kids saved because they think if their child will just get saved, then all the problems of child rearing will go away, right? They would become little perfect mature children who do everything right. It's like the parents who have had in my office who say, now you know this Jesus thing you're talking about means that you have to clean your room when I tell you to. <laughs> they all of a sudden bring in how dirty the room is when we're talking about the gospel here. Like, if we'll get that. But guess what, y'all? That saved child will still probably struggle with keeping their room clean even after they're saved. Leading a child to Christ does not change the basic issues of child rearing. They, child rearing, they, they are still children who need to be trained up in life and in God. That's why Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Notice that verb there, bring them up, raise them up. It's continuous, it's an ongoing process. It's going to have hills, it's going to have valleys, it's going to have mountains, it's going to have cliffs. But all along the way, you walk with them. Just like when they were born again. When that baby was born, you didn't just say, all right, kids, you're on your own. No, you walked with them. You had a strategic goal in mind to help them with every aspect, to learn to walk, to learn to eat, to do tie their shoes, to say their ABCs, all those things. We have to see parenting as a long-range discipleship process with your child if they're going to grow to be a disciple of Christ. And one of the most important ways for you to do that is not to necessarily sit down and instruct your kid like they're in a classroom, but it's to instruct your kid as you are going in life, right? To make it a part of your life. I said it last week, I'll say it again this week. The Christian faith is caught as much as it's taught. Walk with them, journey with them, live the Christian life in front of them, as a disciple of Christ, as a follower of Christ, that they might follow in your footsteps. But if, there, if you're going to do this, there's going to be some things that you'll need. There are going to be some things that you need if you're going to 
have this idea, this, this, this process of this long, long-range discipleship process with your kids, you're going to need these five things. First, you're going to need intentionality. What you want, you only have so long, right? Christy and I talk about this all the time. Particularly my wife. She, she's very tender to this. We only have so many years with them under our authority in our home. And that means that we have to have what we want them to be, what we hope they'll be at the end of that. We have to be intentional, right? If we want them to be this at the end, what are the steps that I have to do along the way to bring them to that point? You have to have a plan for your child. And it's going to be different for every child, right? Nobody has two children who are just alike, amen? They are all different. They are every one of them different. My wife's dad raised nine kids, and he'll tell you, every one of them were like night and day. That means that you have to have an individual plan for each, right? right? You, you can have these big goals, but each one you're going to have to address in a different way and work this way with them and encourage them in this way. You have to be intentional, though, with that child if you're going to have this lifelong process. Secondly, though, you've got to bring the instruction. You've got to have instruction. This is what you're going to need. They've got to know the right way to go. And the only way you're going to do that is to open up the Word of God and to teach them the right way to go. If you're going to disciple them, it literally means to be a student of God and the ways of God. That's what disciple means. And you can't be a student unless you're taught, right? You've got to teach. You've got to be taught. And so you've got to instruct them. Open up the Word of God. Third, you know what you're going to need? You're going to need patience. <laughs> oh my goodness. Man, I'm telling you what. We often think, man, they, they, they've hit a phase, they're doing good, they're doing great, and then all of a sudden, it goes haywire, right? Been there, done that myself in my own life. Mom and dad could stand and testify about that. But if you're going to continue in that discipleship process, it takes patience. It takes not ever saying, forget it, I'm done. Fourth, it's going to take Grace. You've got to have grace in this process along the way. And finally, perseverance. Continue to walk with that child and never give up. Just like your heavenly father has never given up on you. Aim at that heart. Embrace parenting as a long-range discipleship process. Now again, when I say long range, 18 years, 22 years, I mean, whatever time they grow up and marry and make their own house, I mean, whenever it is, it's limited. It's long range, but it's limited. Time is of the essence. And if you say, well, I've already missed out, man. He's already 12. He's already 14. Start now. (laughs) There is time to recover. God can recover that which was broken, that which was lost. Finally, to focus first and foremost on your child's heart, finally I would say this, is to aim at the heart when you discipline. Aim at the heart when you discipline. Discipline, it's a must when it comes to child rearing. That's what loving parents do, isn't it? That's what God the Father does. 
Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. That's what loving parents do. They discipline. But oftentimes, we merely aim at the flesh, don't we? We oftentimes merely aim at the flesh. Don't get me wrong, man. There is a time and a place, amen, to aim for the flesh, right? That's really important sometimes, especially if you think about Scripture, Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen, where it says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. You know what that means? That means that that foolishness can be knocked out. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's not what it means. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. But nevertheless, the rod of discipline, it's important, especially as a child is younger. Right, as they grow older, as, as you're able to reason with them, that's a different thing. But we've got to have that rod of discipline. But we've got to aim at their hearts. You may be striking their bottom, but you're aiming for their heart. So how do you aim at their heart? Let me give you just a few things here, some practical things to aim at their heart. When you discipline first, it's to discipline appropriately. Don't come at this thing with a nuclear bomb when it requires a fly swatter. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we as parents overreact. Kids do not say amen. <laughs> right? We do. Sometimes we overreact and we blow up and make a mountain out of a molehill. It's very important for us parents to discipline appropriately. But also, number two, to discipline self-control. Discipline self-controlled. Parents, if you want to aim at the flesh instead of the heart, then discipline your child with anger. Every time it's going to inflame, it's going to inflame the anger in their own heart. You're going to exasperate your children. You're going to, as it said there in, in, in Ephesians, in Ephesians earlier where it said to, to, um, to not provoke your children to anger. You see, your anger, when you discipline in anger, it actually provokes your child to anger. I'm not standing up to you, or I'm not standing here before you as one who has arrived in this area. But self-control is very important. It's very, very important. If you will come self-controlled to it, by the Spirit of God, right? That's a fruit of the Spirit, which applies to parenting, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you will come to that situation self-controlled. Yes, there's, there's anger there, but it's controlled anger. It's righteous anger. It's controlled anger under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I promise you it'll change that discipline experience. It'll change it because you will aim for the heart instead of their hind end. I promise you, you will. Self-control, because when you're in anger, you just want to do, just get it over with. Boom, boom, boom. But self-control brings about aiming at the heart. Third, you need to discipline privately. Discipline privately. Again, you want to provoke your child to anger? Discipline them in front of their brothers or sisters. Discipline them in front of their friends. Call them out in public. And again, you will see their heart harden toward you. Instead of wooing their heart and convicting their heart, again, you will harden 
their heart. Fourth, I would say discipline with the law. Discipline with the law. In other words, here's what I mean by this. You need to help them to understand that what they did was wrong. Right? You, you need to help them understand. Honey, when you hit your brother, that is breaking the law of God. You're not being kind to your brother. Or when you lied to your mom, that is breaking the law of God. When you stole that from your cousin, that was breaking the law of God. You see, when you bring that to bear, when you bring the law to bear, the Holy Spirit gets involved. And this is what we're aiming at, guys. If your child has done something wrong, we want them to be convicted, to feel sorry for what they did wrong, for their sin. And that's what the law of God does. The law of God gets into the heart and begins to work and begin to convict that they might actually repent and not just persevere through the punishment. We want their heart to be convicted that they might change. And finally, discipline with instruction. Discipline with instruction. They need to know what they did was wrong and they need to know how to do it right the next time. To discipline right the next time. And all of this, of course, comes along with grace and mercy and all the things that God has shown you. You see, we want a parent like God parents. We want to connect with their hearts. We want to aim at their heart, that our heart might be connected to them. Because one day, they're going to leave your home. One day they will. I'm reminded of a story by John G. Patton. He was a missionary to New, uh, to New, New Hebrides, uh, today called Vianatu in the South Seas. Uh, he was born in Scotland in 1824. And this one scene, it best captures the depth of love between his dad and him. See, this is what we want, guys. We want, the, we want to aim for their heart, to connect with their heart, to know that they, to, that they know that we love them. And not just want them to act a certain way, that we love them and that we aim at their heart. The scene here impacts, it, it shows the, the power of the impact on John's life of the uncompromising love of his father. The time came when young Patton was to leave home and go to Glasgow to attend, uh, attend divinity school and become a city missionary in his early 20s. And so from his hometown of Totherwald to the train station at Kilmarnock, it was a 40-mile walk. Forty years later, Patton wrote this. He said, my dear father walked with me the, six, the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if they had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever memory steals me away to the scene, for the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying his hat in hand while his long flowing yellow hair, yellow then but in later years white as snow, streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me and his tears fell fast when our eyes would meet other, each other in looks, uh, in, in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, then solemnly and affectionately said, 
God bless you, my son. Your, father, uh, your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I'd left him, gazing after him still standing there, waving my hat adieu. I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet still stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He didn't see me, and after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and then began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze. And then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. If you want to win your child's heart, aim for their heart. And in doing so, here's my final prayer. May your child grow to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that He sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. 
Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us. And I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.